0: 0818 715 815 Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to LiveLine.
1: And 51551 is our text number, and joe at rt.ie. Yesterday we began uh, the programme, it was a simple thing I mentioned in the promo with Louise at uh, half twelve, and that is the 170th anniversary of Clerys and that Cleary's were setting up an archive, and did anyone know anything about it? And uh, shockingly, the first call we got was about a murder of a Cleary's employee doing his work just outside Cleary's in uh, 1982, and his his name was Gerard uh, Crowley, and then his Children contacted us and they told us the full horrific details. He was uh, walked uh, along uh, with with another man. They were taking money from Cleary to the bank and they were ambushed. And uh, Mr Crowley, unfortunately, was shot dead. And a number of people said it's, it's a murder that's been forgotten. Now, we begin today with another uh, horrific, uh, mor- two murders indeed, uh, back in uh, 1980 when... Um, Two Gardaí was one of the most horrific crimes. Two Gardaí, Henry Bourne and John Morley, uh, based in Ballahedrine in County Roscommon, were uh, murdered um, after a bank raid. They chased the bank raiders, and um, the two Gardaí were murdered. And if you see a photograph of their Garda car, a Ford Escort from the day, 439 IZU, and it's absolutely riddled with Bullets and 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 shotgun. It's it, the car is an absolute wreck from the uh, attack on it. Uh, three men were subsequently convicted of the capital murder of the two guardie, and they were uh, Colin Moshey, Pat McCann, and Peter Pringle. And uh, Peter Pringle took a case subsequently. It was fourteen years later, and the court granted uh, granted him a retrial. However, the retrial was not possible because uh, after that time a lot of uh, the witnesses had died, including some senior Garda witnesses, so uh, Peter Pringle uh, walked free. Now, since Peter Pringle died, unfortunately, uh, on uh, New Year's Eve, um, there have been contesting, to say the least, articles in newspapers about him. The Sunday Independent uh, called him a uh, human rights campaigner and uh, the uh, Irish Examiner said, uh, death doesn't answer the question, was Peter Pringle the third man in Balahadreen? And there have been uh, letters to uh, the examiner as well, and one of them was from a guard, the serving guard at the time, saying we were not fooled by Peter Pringle, he believes. Now, Sonny Jacobs is uh, the widow of uh, Peter Pringle. Sonny, good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon.
1: And first of all, Sonny, condolences on the passing of your husband, um, I know you've been on the tour, you were on this program before because you were campaigning and you still campaign for the abolition of the death sentence. Um, what's your reaction, Sonny, to the fact that this issue has is now being brought up again? Was Peter the third killer in Ballahadrine?
2: Well, uh, I think <clears throat> that the man who wrote that uh, article uh, in the Examiner has been cashing in on this stance of his long time, obviously without regard for the feelings and well-being of the families involved. Even now, just a little over a week since Peter's passing, mm-hmm. about kicking a person when it's down. Well, Peter isn't here to speak for himself anymore, but I am, and a lot of other people as well. And yeah. I can tell you that over the last 25 years since Peter and I have known each other, okay. he has influenced lives of an abundance of people, all in a positive way. What attracted me to Peter initially was his integrity. His de- he dedicated his life to love and healing and mm-hmm. peace and helping people. So Mick Clifford's point of view has become the best argument against death penalty that I can think of today. Because regardless of what you think about Peter's life prior to the last 25 years,
3: mm-hmm.
2: past 25 years he's helped a great many people to heal from trauma, some wrongful convictions, and all of it was done with love. So regardless of what you might have thought of him before, mm-hmm. the fact that he spent the last quarter of a century of his life helping other people is the best argument against the death penalty that I think that there is. And I'd just like to add, and thank you for letting me continue. So um, yeah. trying to sort through the details of a case is like picking at the scabs of the wounds of all the families involved, because it can never be resolved. And that's the way it is in most cases, all wrongful conviction cases that I know of. And that's one of the reasons that a wrongful conviction haunts people for the rest of their lives. And you can have many people on to tell you about it. But the fact that the courts deemed Peter's conviction as unsafe and unsound, therefore, according to the law, Peter is an innocent man. And you can't just believe in the law when it makes a decision you agree with and then not believe in the law when it makes decisions you don't agree with. I think it's sad that after more than 40 years, that this man is still making a living, making an issue out of this case. Peter Prinkle's conviction was overturned, and he's an, as innocent as anyone else. And Peter devoted his life to healing and helping other people heal from trauma and injustice. We started with each other, helping mm-hmm. and we traveled the world. We visited over 15 countries to help people understand how injustice happens and the importance of healing. So for the sake of all the families involved, for the sake of anyone who's suffered an injustice, I say it's time to put this to rest and let everyone heal. Peter always said that if you could leave this world a little better than you found it, then you would have lived a good life. And Peter certainly did that. And now, out of respect, I think the family should be given mm-hmm. the time and the space in which to heal and find comfort in the goodness that filled Peter's life and the lives of the others that. And thank you, Joe, for giving
1: and, me. Uh. uh and shit. and Sonny, you you believe you've just you believe that Peter was wrongly convicted of the murder of the two Gardee.
2: The court said he was. Therefore, he. No, was. No, the
1: court said he he was entitled to a retrial.
2: No, a retrial no, was ordered. No, Joe. They said that his conviction was unsafe and unsound.
1: Yeah, and and that
2: main issue. So whether he or not he was entitled to a retrial, that's. That's, uh, you know, that... Well, obviously, they didn't retry him. <laughs> they let him go.
1: Well, so, because, because at that stage, uh, the number of key witnesses, including Senior Gardee, had died, there was no possibility of a retrial in terms of the witnesses.
2: Well, like I said, I'm not going to go over the details of it, because okay. I think it's a moot point. The court's conviction should be overturned. It was overturned. There was never a new trial... Whatever reason, and therefore he has to be considered as an innocent person according to the,
1: but do you that, do you believe he was wrongly convicted in the force pl- in the first place absolutely and how do you know that Sonny,
2: no, I just told you no one can know anything, no one can know anything except that the court determined that he was wrongly convicted and they overturned the conviction and he is now to be considered an innocent man. I think to debate the details of
3: something. Mm-hmm.
2: I never really know is a waste of time and energy and time is very precious as i as i can tell you and so is my energy so i won't i won't do that mm. I'll do that to other people who have more time and energy to waste i don't
1: and did you read michael clifford's article in the no. examiner at the weekend and he's been writing no. about this for a number of years
2: I know that, and he was even prevented from writing a book because it, he was slandering Peter. But the point is, I think he's wasting his time after forty years. He should grow up and, and and get a life. And I'm not—I did not read his article because I told you I don't waste my time in anything. There's there's no point in what he's in, in any of it. It's mm-hmm. just no point. It it just keeps people raw and prevents them from healing. I think we'll. Nobody's ever going to be able to prove anything. Therefore, we just have to believe what you believe. You know, you believe what I be, You believe, I believe what I believe. And, and everybody's entitled to believe what they believe. But I think people should be given this chance mm-hmm. to just feel and move past this and and um, be respected in whatever they do believe.
1: But there was, I don't know whether you ever spoke to Peter about the case. There was a major case here in Ireland when the two Gardaí were murdered. Uh, in the course of their duty, uh, two of them were unarmed, one of them wasn't, Henry Bourne and John Morley. Um, did you ever talk to Peter about the case?
2: No, 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 I did not. Uh, okay. There was, when it came to legal things that were in the courts, and um, there are still things in the courts uh, because of the injustice that was done to Peter. So I think if there was not an injustice done, surely they wouldn't be debating it this long. But um, no, we didn't. We moved on, and that was the whole point. Mm-hmm. And that—that's the point of what I'm saying now. I think that um, instead of picking at the scab of mm-hmm. the wound of the people that you know lost their loved ones or whose loved ones' lives were destroyed as a result of what happened. That yeah,
1: do, they, do the, those families. I don't know where the Morley and and the Bourne families are now. they had young. They were very, very young men, young families, young children. I don't know where they are now, but do did, did they not deserve closure as well? Because um, there was also a book written by a detective, a detective Tom Connolly, who was in charge of the investigation. And he's written in incredible detail about the case. I recommend it to people if you're interested in the case. But he is adamant as, as up to an hour ago when I spoke to him, he's adamant that Peter Pringle was the third man. And he, he proffered a new a new suggestion to us as to why he knew apart from the evidence that was put forward in court. So it's the the problem is it's not going to go away, is it, Sonny? Unfortunately, even though you didn't know Peter at the time, you'd nothing. You weren't even. I uh, know you have. You were you are from the states originally, and you met Peter subsequently.
2: I, my answer to you is the same. I think that these people, with all their speculations, we can hmm. never anything anymore i think that they should have the respect and the decency mm-hmm. to get off of it and let the families heal and get on with their life okay. they have good memories they have whatever happened to them i have whatever happened to me i was wrongly convicted yeah, also. i
1: know that i know and that yeah
2: the best thing that anyone can do is have the decency to stop speculating and making a living off of off of doing so and let people just heal and get on with their lives that's what i think that's really all i have to say peter always reminded me to say peace is the way and love is the answer okay. and that is my final word.
1: and did peter ever do you know um because one of my knows definitely still alive uh two other men were convicted at the same time as peter and they did 33 years in prison and uh, I read an interview of one of them in 2016 by Cahill McMahon and The Mirror. And um, this, this, uh, this survivor, Pat McCann, was in a terrible state after coming out of prison, a horrific state of living. Did Peter ever have any contact with them? He said he knew them in, in, in court, but he only knew them from a distance. But was there ever any concern for those two men after they did 33 years each?
2: Peter and I work with people who were wrongly convicted, who have suffered an injustice in the system, and anybody who wanted help from us could get it. I yeah. don't know if either, of them, either of them ever asked for help. So,
1: well, I, I don't. I don't. Looking at the interview with Pat McCann in the mirror and the photograph of the man, he was living in a hay shed. He was living from almost from field to field. This was after he was released after thirty three years. Like, were, were were they innocent as well? <laughs>
2: That's a silly question, Joe. Why? Is, I because and nobody who wasn't at the scene could possibly tell you that. I I never um uh, I, that's not my area. My area okay. is the people strongly deny and, and anybody who comes to me uh, who's suffered an injustice, I am willing to help. And that's that's all I can tell you. I I've never had any contact with those people, so I really okay. can't. And I wouldn't comment because okay. if. I had had contact with people that would be private and personal. Okay. I would never put that out there. I don't believe that that's right.
1: Well, I, I don't know. As I say, I don't know if Colin Moshe or Pat McCann, I don't know if they're alive or dead. Maybe some of their relatives might might tell us. But it is, I take your point. There was two, two men murdered, uh, two young men with young families. Um, there was three people convicted, including Peter, and the evidence at the Times seemed to be overwhelming in terms of witnesses and forensic evidence and uh, no alibis and all that carry on. But, uh, the, as you say, he, the, the, he was granted a retrial, uh, which didn't go ahead because it was the, the state argued. But the state never paid him compensation, did they?
2: No, they did not. Yeah. Uh, Why not? It's interesting that you bring up um, that point because... Um, uh, Really, the state
1: should compensate everyone who's wrongly convicted, but they don't. Yeah, but the state said at the time, it has not been found that he's wrongly convicted. It's been found because of a technicality about a tissue which had blood on it. And Peter, at the time of his arrest, refused to give a blood sample. Uh, The guard at Tom Connolly found the tissue in, uh, being it wasn't relevant, it was never brought up in the original trial, so it wasn't relevant. Um, and then there was the technicality about the chain of possession of the um, this tissue. But when Peter Peter uh, took his case, it was discovered he had the same blood group as that was found in the car. But anyway,
2: wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't, you, I don't know where you're getting your information from. But that is that has been under a dispute for a very long time. Okay. And, uh, wait a minute, and they are still withholding evidence that we have asked for many, many years. So I think you should talk to the lawyers before you make any statements about yeah. that, or de- depend on the statements of um, anybody else, because um, you're in shaky ground now, because there's still evidence that Peter's lawyer has been trying to get, and still has not been able to get. So why are they still hiding that? Maybe you should ask that question. Okay. But anyway, me, okay. I'm done. I'm going back to my grieving. Okay. Uh, Peter had a beautiful life; okay. it was the best part of my life, and he was the best man that okay. I have ever known.
1: Well, can and I again? Well, can again, Sonny? Can I offer my condolences uh, to you and Peter's uh, extended family? Uh, the death of anyone is is uh, a horrific uh, trauma to go through. Sonny, I wish we- I wish you well, and nice. I, I I wish you peace and and comfort. And I know I've, no one would be under any doubt. From what you said there about your love for Peter over the last quarter of a century, and
2: just for me, we—we we, it was very, very special. And Peter, just his whole life, he stood for love. So uh, I can't tell you anything else, but I know that, and um, that I think that if the people willing to call in about negative things, I hope there are people to call in about positive things too, because um, he, he was a very special person, okay. and he made himself a very special. Person that we did together.
1: Okay, Sonny, Sonny again, kind, kind regards and condolences. That's Sonny, Sonny Jacobs, the widow of Peter Pringle they met 25 years ago. Michael Clifford, good afternoon, journalist with the uh, Irish Examiner and podcaster. Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Why are you bringing this up again?
4: Yeah, John, the first instance, I'd like to extend my condolences yeah. to Sonny Jacobs and her personal loss, but this is a matter of public interest, I think. And, and as she said, I have written about it before. I haven't cashed in anything. Mm-hmm. But because it's a matter of public interest... Joe, I first came to this over 10 years ago when Peter Pringle brought out a book about mm-hmm. his experiences. In that book, he maintained he'd been a victim of a miscarriage of justice. He also maintained that Gardy had concocted evidence against him. Now... That was a total distortion of what had occurred, both in his appeal hearing and in the initial investigation into the murder back in 1980. Neither of those things were true, so I went and I researched it, and I researched it in detail. It is correct that Peter Pringle, in the eyes of the law, is not guilty of murder. However, there's a preponderance of evidence to suggest that he was there that day in Balladurin. Now, leaving all of that aside, we have a criminal justice system, which I agree with, that is is based on the idea that the guilty go free rather than the innocent be locked up. He Mm -hmm. was the beneficiary of that in his appeal in 1995, and as I say, that is as the law should be. He was also the beneficiary, as you pointed out, of the fact that it would have been extremely difficult to retry him, particularly because a senior Garda who had signed his initial detention warrant had since died. At that point, it was up to Mr. Pringle to, what you might say, carry on with his life or whatever. Instead, he chose to go out to the world and present himself as a, mis- as, as a victim of a miscarriage of justice
3: mm-hmm.
4: at, at, at the suggestion that Gardy had concocted evidence against him to frame him. And in some instances, and for example, I wrote in 2016, there was an event hosted by the singer Judy Collins where Mr. Pringle was described as a man who had spent 15 years on death row. Now, I have an awful lot of time for the organizations who campaign against the death penalty mm-hmm. and miscarriages of justice, and I've written about enough of them myself. However, to my mind, somebody of Mr. Pringle's background, for him to be campaigning, arguably does a disservice to such campaigns, because there is a huge question over whether or not he was in Ballad Doreen. And most certainly, he was not a victim of a miscarriage to justice, as we understand that term. One final thing that goes towards that is the fact that you referenced that he was never paid compensation by yeah. the state. He, he did not begin an action fully until 2018, nearly 40 years after the event. He continually said he was trying to get his action into court. Joe, anybody who has been the victim of a miscarriage of justice would immediately apply for compensation, and correctly so. And we've had a number of instances like that where Mm. people have done it. If he was so innocent, why did he not immediately go into court and apply for compensation on the basis that he was such a victim? And I believe the reason he didn't was because he would have been treading dangerously even in the civil courts in terms of what might emerge. And he did that finally after nearly 40 years and the state's case in that was that the 115 witnesses who were present at the original criminal trial, most of them would either be dead or possibly incapacitated, and it was unfair. And the initial High Court agreed with that and said that there was an inordinate delay in bringing any such action, and Mr. Pringle was to blame for it. Now, the Appeal Court sent it mm-hmm. back to the High Court, that's where it currently stands, when Mr. Pringle died on New Year's Eve. However, to my mind, he presented himself as somebody he was not, he attempted to smear the Guardi, including and principally Tom Connolly, whom you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, as having victimised him in some way. And he also presented to those who were unfamiliar with it. And I've spoken to people who attended some of his, his talks in colleges and that that were packed and people agog that this man had been framed as he portrayed it. And all. And quite frankly, there's absolutely no evidence of any of that.
1: And is it that Sonny, his his widow Sonny, mentioned the fact that she met him twenty five years ago, and that he they they set off. She was speaking at a, a an event in Dublin about the death sentence, and Sonny, as we know, was wrongly convicted. And Peter Peter Pringle was in the audience, and that's that's how they that's how they met. Is it because Peter Pringle, and then he was championed by a number of people, and I'll come back to your own situation in a sec, a number of journalists and a number of campaigners and organisations. Is it that Peter Pringle, you're saying, used his situation to represent himself as something he wasn't?
4: Yes, exactly. And and, and to my mind...
1: Okay. Okay, the second question is, uh, people know uh, Mick Clifford, Michael Clifford. They would know you from exposing garda corruption in, for example, in the Mars McCabe case. You were you were to the forefront yeah. of that. Along with other, they would know you in exposing uh, 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 disharmony, to say the least, in our prison system. In other words, you were known as a, as a, you are known, and you've won awards for your your investigation of the state. But so people would not expect. Suddenly, not suddenly, people would not expect Mick Clifford to take up this case of a man who was freed to try and prove that he was, in your own words, the third man in Balahadreen. Why did you go down that road, Mick?
4: Well, simply because Joe, attention was drawn, my attention was drawn to it when uh, Peter Pringle published his book. And there'd always been questions over the case as far as I could see. And then I went and investigated it. Now, As you say, very often I've investigated stuff to do with state um, malfeasance or or corruption, but I just basically followed the facts.
1: And what are the facts? What are the facts that prove that Peter Pringle was in Ballahead
4: Well, uh, the case that was made by the prosecution was circumstantial, because as you mentioned... Initially, the two men were caught at the scene, McCann and O'Shea, and quite frankly, the case against them was obviously overwhelming. One of them had been injured in, in, in the shooting that had, had, had ended in the, in the death of the two young Gardaí. Now, uh, Peter Pringle was uh, very soon after that, by the way, within days, the Gardaí identified Peter Pringle as their suspect as being the third man, and a manhunt was launched for him. He was found 10 days later in a house in Galway, He had dyed his hair and he had shaved his beard. Now, people can take what they want with that. In terms of the evidence, there was a number of strands of the circumstantial evidence. I'll just give you some of the things. For example, there were workmen at at a a road near Nock who
3: offered Mm -hmm. the
4: description of Peter Pringle among men in two Ford Cartinas who had passed en route to Balhadarine on the day of the robbery. There were residents in the village of Dunmore, which was nine miles from where the stolen bagels were abandoned. They provided details of a man matching Pringle's inscription two days after the murder. The prosecution case was that he had lived rough for two days before making his way to Galway. A soft drinks bottle retrieved from that village in Dunmore contained his fingerprints. There were six wine-coloured wool fabrics matching those from the jumper he was wearing when arrested, found in one of the getaway cars. Three flecks of paint in a pocket of the jeans he was wearing when arrested matched others found in the back seat of one of the cars and matched flecks of paint located in the pockets of O'Shea and McCann. And two grey hairs found in the house where he was arrested. And remember, he had dyed his hair by the time he was arrested. They matched other hairs found in one of the uh, hijacked cars. Now, we had no no, uh, DNA at the time. And all of these were... Uh, forensic elements to the case which of their own might add up to something. There was, however, a clinching aspect to it and that was the man in Galway whose house he was found in was brought in when uh, Pringle was being interviewed and he made a number of admissions in front of Pringle related to how Pringle had showed up at his house, when he had showed up, Mm -hmm. what he may have said to him in the state he was in. Following that, Peter Pringle made an admission to Tom Connolly, the guard you mentioned previously, and he said, According to the Garda record, he said, I know you know I did it, but on the advi- that I was involved, but on the advice of my solicitor, I'm saying nothing. Peter Pringle subsequently said, suggested what he said was, I know you think I did it. Now, the, the court accepted the Garda's version of that, and all of that went towards his conviction.
1: And he didn't, he didn't, there was no witness called in their defence, no alibis, no alibis called, um, neither, none of the three men gave evidence, but that's their entitlement as well, mm, and absolutely. It's, it's down to this, and what, what when, you, when you read obituaries, for example, the obituary in the Sunday Independent, which I think was one of the reasons we got a call about it, where he was, he was, uh, the, the top line was Peter Pringle, human rights campaigner, do you get upset at that? Well, I just, I would raise questions about it, Joe. I mean, as I say, I, I believe strongly in, in,
4: in groups the campaign about miscarriages, just the death penalty. But I also believe that if the wrong person is doing the campaigning, that takes credibility away from those campaigns. And i would be honest with you, I contacted one individual who was involved in one such campaign when I saw a number of years ago that Mr. Pring was advertising appearing. And all I said was, well, do you realise the real story there? And... They weren't terribly interested, and if I had not researched this to the detail that I had, Mm -hmm. that that obituary, as you refer to it, I, I, I would take it completely at face value, as most people would. But then again, a certain amount of that is back to the kind of persona that Mr. Pringle created over the last 25 years as being this campaigner against miscarriages of justice on the basis that he had been on death row and he had been a victim of a miscarriage.
1: And Sonny Jacobs told us earlier that um, that she she thought the Sunday Independent um, obituary was was very fair.
4: Well, and I can understand Sonny Jacobs is the man's partner, his widow, and you know I can understand the personal basis where she's coming from. She also said to you just there she never discussed the the, the case with him, which I, I was very uh, I was very surprised at. I mean, uh, like, like these things, Joe. As a journalist, you go and look for the facts. You go and look for the details and, and, and let things fall where they may thereafter. And and that's all I did. I have nothing in the world against Peter Pringle. And I have written, as you said, about other victims of miscarriage of justice and what have you. But that's where the facts led me. And the other element to it is that anybody reading his book, and he was careful not to mention Tom Connolly by name, but anybody who's reading his book would come away with the impression that a senior Garda, had concocted, or at least one, if not two, had concocted evidence to frame the span. And there's absolutely no... And not only that, sorry, the Court of Appeal no, made a point of noting that it was not laying any blame at any of the Garvey, and they pointed out that after 14 or 15 years, people could, would be expected, they might have different recollections of an event. And as you said yourself, had there been a retrial, there is every possibility that the court would have come back with exactly the same verdict as it did initially,
1: but there will always be. I'm sure we'll get it today. There, there will always be. It was a, a paramilitary group. They had associations with the IRA, then the INLA, then Seirra, whatever they were involved in. Um, there will always be people say you, you, you would never have got a fair. Republic has never got a fair trial.
4: Well, a couple of things about that. First of all, the, I mean, I don't think anybody would suggest for a second there was any issue over the guilt of the other two men. Um, they know who the third man was. And the other thing that I discovered, when, when you talk about the, a Republican group, they were flying in a Republican flag at convenience. Everything I could see suggested they were out on a so-called frolic of their own to, to, to get some money. Well,
1: they got, got, th- they, they got £35,000 yeah. Yeah. on the day, yeah. Which is a substantial, substantial uh, amount of money. Stay with us. I'm talking to Mick Clever. We're talking about this case, and Mick, I'll come back to this. You know, I, I don't want to fall into cliches because I do. You've, you've addressed this in one sense, but you know, let uh, don't speak ill of the dead.
4: Absolutely, and I, I can understand that. And I, I, I had, I, I paused. Let me put it that way. Initially, when I thought about writing the piece I did last Saturday, however, as opposed to that. Mr. Pringle wasn't somebody who, following um, his release from jail, that he, he, he moved back into the shadows or whatever, mm-hmm. or he got on with his life in a private way and what have you. He, he, he was a public figure. He featured frequently in the media, and he featured at talks and lectures mm-hmm. and telling people, and very often students and people, you know, who wouldn't have been uh, fait with the whole facts about how, the system here had done him a disservice now to my mind the system does a disservice to people but if you portray a false case in that light
3: yeah.
4: you 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 you, you it, things lose credibility in that respect and i believed it was a matter of public interest as a result and that's why i wrote and i'm not cashing in on anything joe i know i know that, i know that, i know doing my job here in am employed by the irish examiner but
1: you you could you uh... You see, you could have, you could have. You, I'm sorry, it's, it's, the, it's the wrong way words are coming out here. You could have just done an obituary of him, but this this page you've done in last Saturday's Examiner is devastating in terms of your arguments as to why he was the third man. Well, as I say, it's just
4: laying out the facts.
1: I mean... But someone has the, phoned in to say he, he actually sought compensation mm-hmm. in 1995. He did. He, he, well, what he did was, initially when
4: he was released from prison, his solicitor wrote to uh, the Attorney General, I'm not sure which office, and demanded an interim payment of £50,000. And that figure was arrived at, this was all in the solicitor's letter, yeah. on the basis that that had been the interim payment payment received by the, the individuals in the Birmingham Six. Okay. So immediately he, he, he was placing himself in the same category as the Birmingham Six who were subjected to an awful miscarriage of justice. And the, and the crucial thing in that aspect, the state, or the, whichever office was, gave him a short shrift and, and just come to go away. The, the obvious thing then, for an innocent person, mm. and rightly so, absolutely rightly so, somebody had been wronged by the state, you immediately pursue compensation for the basis of being wrongfully imprisoned for 15 years, and you would be entitled to large compensation, quite obviously. And yet, for 20 going on 20 years, or between 1995 and 2018, any time, and I've heard him ask them the media, and I asked him myself when I spoke to him in 2012, he was asked, he said, I'm trying to get it into the High Court. Now, Joe, There's nothing to stop somebody getting into the High Court, and if somebody was a victim of miscarriage just the Courts would facilitate them in any way possible. And as I say, the 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 High Court initially, 2020, said there had been an inordinate delay, and that was down to Mr Mm -hmm. Pringle. And again, the Courts are very careful in terms of, of blaming somebody for a delay.
1: And have you any idea what happened to the two men who served? They're the longest, not not the longest, I know the, the killers of, of uh, Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary, uh, the late Mary Duffy, God, God rest those two young women who were murdered by Sean Evans, and one of them is still in prison. But the, the two other men, Pat McCann and Colin Moshe, did 33 years in prison. Now, do, do, yeah, Does the, anyone know what happened then? Well.
4: First of all, the, the reason they got out after 33 years and didn't have to serve the full 40, there had been a ruling in Europe the previous year, um, I think it may have been actually involved in an Irish case, but it was a European ruling, and on foot of that, they made an application, and I think ultimately the state may not have contested it because it, it, it was uh, what you might call a slam dunk or whatever, and they were released on that basis. Pat McCann, to the best of my knowledge, had some difficulty adjusting mm-hmm. to life outside afterwards, and there was few petty incidents, he, he may have been involved in, and yeah. he, he certainly was somebody who who, who had a lot of difficult. Colm O'Shea effectively Good. melted back into the okay. population. He was a man
1: from Cork. And and Pat McCann or Paddy McCann, as it was known, there's a newspaper report uh, of him in two fourteen, and at, at his own admission, and he looks, God, God help him, he looks in a terrible state, um, and his own admission to the journalist. One, he wanted to be taken back into prison. He couldn't cope with life on the outside after 33 years. He was homeless. He was moving between psychiatric asylums, hay barns and other makeshift shelters. I'm homeless. I'm cold and hungry. I'm the, he's taking the, base, the drastic step of begging prison bosses to take him back yeah i don't know i don't know how it, anyway i well i i i, I peter's peter said peter bringham said in court that he didn't he knew of them and knew them across the room now the the state had a number of witnesses of the two of them being three of them being together in a hotel for a number of days before mm. before uh the the uh murders but um that's, that's the life that Pat McCann led and I don't know if the man is alive or dead I hope he's alive and uh, Colin Moshe no one wants to see anyone anyone die okay stay with us uh, Mick Clifford uh, back after this break
0: Talk to Joe on 0818 Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815
1: A man called Peter Pringle uh, died uh, two weeks ago unfortunately on New Year's Eve he was 84 years of age Um, there have been a number of obituaries in their national newspapers Uh, the Sunday Independent uh, their headline was uh, Peter Pringle the human rights campaigner Um, and the Cork Examiner through Michael Clifford has taken a completely different line and uh, there was a full page article in the examiner at the weekend. Debt doesn't answer the question was Peter Pringle the third man in Balahadreen? Balahadreen was a, an armed robbery that uh, took place in uh, 1980. And uh, three men entered the bank and stole, uh, they were armed, uh, shotgun and revolvers, and stole £35,000. Uh, they were chased by uh, a guard, a car, a, a marked guard, a car. And um, believe it or not, the two cars crashed into each other. And um, the Raiders opened fire. And one of the guardie had an Aussie submachine gun. He uh, opened fire. I think he grazed one of the Raiders. But two of the Gardaí, um uh, Henry Bourne and John Morley. John Morley, by the way, a lot of people of that vintage will remember. He was a, a very, very famous uh uh, uh, football player uh, from from AO He's a very young man two young man, young families both of them uh, were shot uh, and were killed but, uh, I think John died a few hours later but they, they died fairly uh, instantly there was a massive everyone anyone who remembers that time will remember the shock two Gardaí murdered in broad daylight of an afternoon on a country road and um, Peter Pringle, three men were sentenced uh, to death as it was then, even though there hadn't been a death sentence uh, uh, executed, so to speak, in decades in Ireland. Um, But they were, that was capital murder of Gardaí and of course their duty the only sentence open to the, judge, was the death sentence. Colin Moshé, Pat McCann and Peter Pringle were sentenced to death within a few weeks. Obviously, the President commuted that to 40 years in prison. Then Peter Pringle subsequently took a case about 10 years later and the the state said that he was entitled to a retrial he was entitled to a retrial, which uh, never took place because at that time, as Michael Clifford has pointed out, who's the journalist and one the here, uh, th- there was a number of witnesses had died. Sonny Jacobs is uh, the widow of Peter Pringle, and they've been together for 25 years. And Sonny herself, people would know Sonny's story, which she's told so eloquently and so strongly over the years, Sonny was. Uh, wrongly convicted in the United States of America and was on death row and was subsequently, uh, thankfully, uh, freed. And um, she says in her 25 years of living with Peter Pringle, one, they never talked about it, but two, he was not the man that's being portrayed by Michael Clifford. And she's asking Michael Clifford, who wrote a long article in the uh, Examiner this weekend, he's asking Michael Clifford to... uh, let by forget about it that there's no evidence to uh convict uh Peter Pringle you've heard the evidence that mick Clifford has collated there um I earlier I mentioned retired detective Tom Connolly and he's adamant uh that Peter Pringle had a part in the murder now he wrote a book in two fourteen. And I happened to read the book recently, and I read the book at the instigation of an article I read from two sixteen by Michael Clifford. And I read the book last week, and um, there's about sixty pages on this particular case because uh, Tom Connolly was uh, the lead, along with Pat Cullen, the lead guard in the case, and the uh, the evidence and the 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 uh, sequence of events um, would have left you with no conclusion. No other conclusion, but that Peter Pringle uh, was the third man. Now, Tom Connolly could not say that at the time because uh, how could he prove it? But he's adamant now today, after the death of um, Peter Pringle, that he wants to, he's, he's elderly, uh, he's a retired detective superintendent, he wants to uh, reiterate what he believes about Peter Pringle. This is Tom Connolly. Uh,
5: on, on that day, I was in Monaghan. In involved in another investigation, so I got a call about what had happened in Malahydrine. So I went down there that evening, and um, remained there for a couple of weeks, really.
3: Yeah.
5: But uh, after the second day, Pat McCann was arrested, Okay. and O'Shea had been arrested at that time and he was in hospital in Galway, mm-hmm. uh, and been The third man was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke to McCann. I had known him before mm-hmm. that occasion and he admitted to me his involvement in the shooting of the two guards. Um, sometime afterwards, some, I think about maybe a week or so, Peter Pringle was arrested in a house in Galway. And I was in Galway Station on the day that he was brought to the station. Mm -hmm. At the time he was brought to the station. And myself and the late detective inspector, as he was at the time, questioned Pringle. He had very little to say to us. We asked him to account for where he was. Uh, on the day of the murder and he says I have nothing to say continued at that for a long time and I will talk to you when I see my solicitor eventually the solicitor came and went and uh, Pringle says he was told not by a solicitor not to say anything but anyway during the whole interrogation that I spent with him on the morning that he was brought to Dublin to be charged, had taken him out in the cell at about half-eight or thereabouts. And during that conversation, he said, we have been putting all the facts to him in a very forceful way. He said, I know you know I was involved. But my solicitor told me not to say anything. And you'll have to prove it all the way. Mm-hmm. Peter Pringle did not give evidence in his own defence. Okay. Neither did any of the other two. Mm-hmm. They didn't call any evidence in their
1: defence. Tom Connolly told me he's convinced that Peter Pringle was... The third man, uh, Mildred Bourne. Mildred, good afternoon.
6: Hello, Joe. How are ya?
1: Um, you? You, you remember that day, even though it was over forty years ago.
6: I remember it as uh, like as if it was today. Mm-hmm. And you won't believe this. I tuned into you, Joe, on my way back, driving back from Ballahadri into my house. Yeah. And I'm parked at the spot where those lads were shot. I am parked here.
1: And is there, any, is there any memorial, Mildred?
6: Oh, there's a mess, absolutely beautiful memorial here with a photograph of John Morley and Henry Burton here at, at Shannon's Cross where the lads died. It's okay. absolutely, and it's just two minutes away from my house. But as I said, I was travelling okay. uh, from Balladrine, and I just, just said I'd pull in and uh, and I remember it like, it was yesterday, and uh, when I arrived on the scene, we were driving behind the Garda car, and my two children were with me. And when I came on the crossroads, this was what was going on. And Henry Byrne was dead out on the on the road, the crossroads. And I said an act of contrition into his ear, mm-hmm. and I will never, I will never ever forget it, never. And then I heard John Morley had been killed. And John Morley used to be in my house. We used to play badminton together. And he, he would be in my house three or four times a week, chatting and talking about the badminton. Mm-hmm. And and to think that this was what I had to look at and the children had to look at. And we will never, ever, ever, ever forget it. And every time I pass here, I say a prayer for them. It was a terrible day. It was a shocking day, right beside our house. So,
1: and they were two young ardies, weren't they?
6: Oh, sure, Henry Burney. You could say was a, was a laddie, and you could really say it. he was he was only a child. And he he was he shouldn't have been on duty at all. He was on duty at a funeral in Castlereagh, and the lads got the call about the guards got the call about this uh, bank robbery in
3: uh, Balladrain, Balladrain. yeah.
6: And uh, then they got a call that the the, the 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 robbers were wherever they were, and Gary Kelly said, "Well." They'll either come out at Shannon's Cross or out at the Convent Road, that's the next road, and they just decided to come that turn in the the Shannon's Cross, and they simply crashed into each other. But Henry Burden just simply was dead in seconds. As they crashed, the shots were fired, and Henry Burden was shot, shot in seconds. Never will we forget. The people of Loughlin will never, ever, ever forget it.
1: Ever. So I, I know uh, John Morley uh, had two sons, two young sons, yes, and Henry yes, Bourne. This again is an indication of how yes, young they were.
6: John Morley had a daughter as well. Okay, and a daughter. Julie, yeah, I see that. Julie, yeah, yes, and then Julie. Henry
1: had uh, two children, and his wife was pregnant yes, at the time. That's like
6: right, that. Mary Bourne. She's she's a wonderful human being.
1: And what yeah. do you what do you think of this? though though I don't want to burden you with this question uh, but if you have an opinion on it let us know what do you think of Sonny Jacobs who has knew met uh, Peter Pringle long after this event these murders but she's arguing I knew him for 25 years and the man I knew is is not that man was not a killer
6: I never met Pringle but he is that man and uh, we 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 were, we were there, we saw, we saw what we saw, and we'll never, ever forget it. And those three men are responsible. And, and that's all I can say. And I, I'm not going to get into details and yeah, all that, accuse yeah, yeah. anybody. But uh, as far as we're concerned, our two friends are dead. And uh, our lovely still, friends that we had. they're
1: still, thankfully, they're still remembered, rightly. I know they're remembered by Never. their families.
6: And, and every year, every year, and every day you pass this monument, there's flowers left by somebody. Yeah. By somebody, there's flowers left there by somebody. They don't have to say who they are, but they're probably local or passing yeah. and say that it's, Shannon's Cross. Shannon's Cross was known for it was very famous in the 1920s, but it certainly was known again now in 40 years ago for these two really lovely lads.
1: And you think, Mildred, just a little detail. You think the the two guardie, um, there was a third guardie in the car. They they were using their local knowledge to say to, when, when the bank robbery took place, they said to themselves, well, they're going to come out either at Shannon's Cross or they knew what yeah. they were doing. They, oh, they, they did, yeah. They, yeah, they, came yeah. Out,
6: they, they left the back, they went out the back road and started coming out the main road for the Castlereagh Road. They came out the back road and they knew that they were heading for to get to the main road some way or another. So they had to either come out at Shannon's Cross or as we call it, the Convent Road. And Derrick Kelly, the Lord of Mercy on him, knew the area because he was a guard in the area. And he knew the area very yeah, well, it, and he, it, said, it, well, we'll, he said, well, we'll chance Shannon's Cross. Yeah, and yeah. He, as he turned in, they were coming through Shannon's Cross. So they just simply crashed into each other. So there was, there was the four guards, in, in there was O'Malley and Kelly and Vernon uh, and John Murray. There was four of them in, in, the, in the squad car that day. Okay. Yeah.
3: Okay.
6: Uh, so it, Mildred, it was terrible, yeah. and we, we always think of the families that had to live through that and bring up their children the best way they could without their husbands. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay, you're, you're at the spot now and I know you'll say a prayer before you leave as you yeah, do when you pass and, and bless yourself every time. Yeah, Mild- Mildred Bourne, mind yourself and thanks indeed, Mildred. Joe, would,
0: Thank you, Joe, and God bless you. God bless
1: you. you and say, travelling. Joe at rte.ie.
0: Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818
1: 715 815. As I say, yesterday's program began with, a, with a, a mortar a lot of people have forgotten about. We were talking about Cleary's of all things, 107th anniversary, is a reopening or not. And then this family rang in and told us uh, our father was shot dead in the Cleary's employee in 1982. And now today we're talking about another mortar, double mortar, two Gardee in 1980. And they are Henry Bourne and John uh, Morley. The three men were initially convicted of the murder. They got uh, 40 years in prison, uh, which was the uh, sentence. The sentence actually originally going way back was a death sentence, but that was, the, the death sentence has been commuted for uh, nearly a century, nearly, yeah, nearly 70 years at this stage. So they were sentenced to 40 years in prison. Two of the men, uh, Colin Moshe and Pat McCann, did 33 years in prison. Pat McCann I gave an interview a number of, about six years ago, he was living in the Midlands around Port Arlington and he was in a terrible state. This is his own admission. He was living in hay barns and homeless and mental institutions and was begging the governor to take him back into prison, would you believe? That he couldn't he couldn't cope after uh, three and a half decades by the decades. By the way, McCann admitted that he he was part of the the three man gang. Michael Clifford, um, the journalist with the investigative journalist with the um, Irish Examiner and other uh, outlets as well. Uh, Michael uh, Clifford wrote after Peter Pringle, the third man, died. He was uh, two weeks ago at age eighty four. Uh, Michael Clifford is uh, sets out his case. In incredible detail in the Examiner, uh, that Peter Pringle was indeed a third man in Ballahadreen, and it was disingenuous. And paraphrasing, stop me if I'm wrong. He was it's disingenuous of him, to say the least, to campaign for the last twenty five years for people who were wrongly convicted, because he was not wrongly corrected, convicted. He was granted a retrial, which never happened because of the passage of time. Um, this is uh, another clip from Tom Connolly. Um, in the interview I did uh, earlier, and he, Tom, as I said, wrote a book. It's called "The Detective Story," and um, he, in writing the book, he actually managed to uh, track down Pat McCann, the, one of the men who admitted firing. I don't think he admitted murder; he was convicted of murder, but he admitted firing a gun on the day, because uh, uh, Tom Connolly had been involved in a number of uh, investigations into IRA robberies, including uh, there was a murder in Tremor, um, Eamon Ryan. Now, that's my name off the top of my head. Forgive me, the family. A young man and his child were in the bank in Tremor, and uh, Eamon Ryan was lying on the ground with his... Um, with his son, and the bank raiders came in and they they shot Eamon Ryan and killed him. And uh, I know uh, Tom Connolly was involved in that investigation and he said he came across Pat McCann. So he set out to find Pat McCann after he he was released from prison. And I asked Tom how he became so convinced of Peter Pringle's uh, involvement in the case.
5: I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that he was guilty. Absolutely. When uh, Pat McCann, when I started to write my book, I decided to go and see Pat McCann, who had been released at that time. I met Pat McCann down in Port Arlington. We discussed many, many, many cases that he was involved in. And he outlined to me and he, he made no secret of the fact that Peter Pringle, O'Shea, and himself were the three people that shot the two girls
1: In Bala Hadreen.
5: As a matter that- of fact, he went to, to, uh, as far as to say that Peter Pringle had the shotgun and it was Peter Pringle that shot John Morley.
1: So that's uh, retired detective superintendent Tom Connolly and you heard him then saying that Pat McCann told him, he was one of the men who admitted his guilt and served 33 years in prison. He told him of Peter Pringle's uh, involvement but of course there'll be people I'm sure who'll, dis- who'll uh, dispute that account of the and uh, Michael Clear, for listening to Tom Connolly there, what, what's your reaction?
4: Well one thing about it Joe, uh, when you were talking to Tom there, I mean he mentioned about when he first interviewed uh, Peter Pringle that Mr. Pringle said nothing, and he subsequently said nothing until he made that admission. Now, in P- and, and he didn't give evidence at his trial. In his um, book, which was published in 2012, mm-hmm. he gave an explanation for how, over the course of 12 days, he, he, he was missing. And he suggested that on the day of the, of the, uh, of the robbery, he'd actually been in Killy Beggs. He'd been intending to go back to Galway and he had a weakness for drink by his own admission, mm-hmm. and he stopped off for a bottle of whiskey that ended up him going on a Skype for a few days, and that most of that time he was drinking over 12 days in the house of this man in Galway. Now, and he also said he didn't know anything about the robbery for a number of days afterwards, despite it being quite obviously nationwide news. Now, I mean, if, if there was truth to that, if that really was what had what he had been engaged in on the day of the murder and the day that the guards were looking for him. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he say that to the guards? Everyone has a right to silence, but if that if that's your alibi, surely be to God, the obvious thing to do is come out and tell them straight away, look, I was on the batter or, or whatever the case may be that he was making but he quite obviously um, he didn't do that. Yet again, in his book, many, many years later this is the explanation he mm. gives okay. which
1: will never be challenged stay, stay with us Michael Aidan Sharkey has contacted us from the Netherlands Joe at RT.ie Aidan good afternoon hello Joe how are you you say you met Peter Pringle two or three days after the the killing of the two guardie.
7: yes in broad daylight in Shop Street in Galway and my father knew him very well I knew him less well And they stopped and they had a conversation on the pavement in Shop Street in Galway Mm. for about 20 minutes.
1: And how did Peter, do you remember, or recall, had Peter Pringle got his distinctive beard and long white hair?
7: Oh, he just looked the same. He had the long Mm. uh, grey hair and the beard and uh, wearing a denim jacket, which he used to wear a lot. And uh, they were just chatting there among that crowded Shop Street. So that didn't give me the impression of someone on the run from
1: murder. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that, Mick?
4: Well, like my understanding Joseph that the pretty quickly identified him as somebody they were seeking. So I find it amazing that he would be in Shop Street uh, like that in a casual base a few days later. I also find it amazing that he'd be in Shop Street if he said that he was actually on a serious. Bender on and the beer, most of which he spent in the house of uh, this man in Galway, whose home he was found.
1: And he also said, Aidan, uh, in his evidence, that he shaved off his beard and his um, cut his hair. And he said the re- uh, almost immediately. And the reason he did that was because he was going to see his solicitor, and he didn't want the gardaí to pick him up. But you're saying two days, three days, or whatever after murder, he was yep. going around Galway with the beard and the white hair. Yes. And even though the guard were looking for him, they never spotted him?
7: No. Well, uh, and he didn't give the impression uh, okay. of being somebody on the run. He was very relaxed, friendly. Okay. And, uh, yeah, my father knew him uh, better than I did. And, uh, you know, being from Killyveggs, we knew him. He was efficient at that time.
1: Yeah, but he said he was in Killybegs. That's where he went uh, around the time of the. He, he, he said he w- he would not give any uh, an alibi for the day of the actual murders. No, but he said I can, he was under- on a, he, I can he,
7: understand his uh, yeah. solicitor telling him not to say anything at that time.
1: But if you're innocent, what's the problem?
7: Well, because you had around uh, that time or a bit before the Nicky Kellan Salins uh, frame up by uh, the Guardi. So I think uh, people were being advised not to uh, say anything by their uh, representatives. They,
1: yeah, but they, they were members. The, the, the people that didn't recognise the court and didn't say anything were members of the IRA. They were... Well, they couldn't they well could.
7: known for his
0: Republican yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, stance. That's true. Okay, okay,
1: okay. A quick break, back after this.
0: Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy. Talk to Joe on 0818 John
1: O'Brien, retards uh, uh, s- uh, chief superintendent. Uh, John has contacted us. John, good afternoon.
0: Joe, good afternoon.
1: Were you in the Garda at that time, John? Do you yeah. remember the case?
8: I do I remember it very well, John. I've written about it extensively as well. I was actually in Westport on a family holiday the day that Henry Byrne and John Molly were murdered.
1: And what do you think of what Tom Connolly is now saying? And he said he had to wait until uh, Peter Pringle died to say it with, with such conviction that he believes uh, Peter Pringle was the third man. And in fact, he's, he's going on a statement, he, well, an interview he did subsequently for his book with. Uh, with uh, Pat McCann, where Pat McCann said that Peter Pringle actually shot John Morley. What do you think of that at this stage?
8: Well, I think at this stage it's very important to stick with the facts as we know them, and the two facts that are in my book, Securing the Irish State, that are very clear on the point is that A, Peter Pringle, and I think uh, McTifford might have mentioned this already, had changed radically changed his appearance. He had been seen on the 2nd of July in Galway wearing his traditional garb and long beard and, you know, generally disheveled appearance. And on the 18th of July, when he was arrested in Ballybane cottages, he, at that stage, had his hair cut short and it was dyed red. It was different from his normal colouring. So that was a fact. And the other bit was the famous uh, trip to Killy Beggs. This was another example of his binge drinking, which, of course, counted very conveniently for his lack of memory during the intervening time. And I think, frankly, the accounts that Peter Pringle put out subsequently and many years later is a classic example of a self-serving denial, and obviously with the hope of achieving some monetary uh, reward as well. But it's important to stay with the facts rather than the opinions that people may have, you know, of what happened at the time.
1: But do you think the facts support the case that Peter Pringle was the third man?
8: Yes, they absolutely do support the case. And I have the utmost uh, respect for Tom Connolly, who I served with, but not in the same, in the mm-hmm. same unit. And he investigated. I would think probably forty or fifty murders in Ireland. And yeah. he is someone of the highest credibility, and he demonstrated that even up to the last year at the service of the Guards, where he took a different view in relation to a certain murder file, uh, mm-hmm. relating to a motor in North county Dublin. In Malahide, so yeah. In Malahide, yeah. So, so like, Tom is absolutely sound on it. But I mean, this. It would strain incredulity to the absolute extreme, and uh, the idea that he was, I mean, come on, let's think about it. He was on a drinking binge on two occasions, and he has no memory. I mean, does he remember why he shaved his uh, hair or shaved his beard and uh, colored his hair? It is positively, uh, and there were three men involved, excuse me, there were three people involved in the, in the, in the raid, and I have the slightest doubt that Peter Pringle was the third man in that respect.
1: And what do you think of the last quarter of a century, in fairness to Sonny, his widow, where she argues that he was a changed man and he was campaigning for people who were wrongfully convicted?
8: Well, whatever is wrote to Damascus conversion, Joe, I think if I heard rightly earlier on, the Sonny's suggestion is that in those 25 years, we never really discussed whether he was a third man or not in that killing, which again I find incredulous, and I don't think there's any collection of long-headed people anywhere in this country or anywhere else would buy that story. It would be a wonderful Christian thing if he found the road to Damascus, but it would be even better if he admitted what he had been involved in and what he had done.
1: And what about the point, John? it's uh, just over 40 years ago, let bygones be bygones, don't speak ill of the dead.
8: No, and I kind of belong to that dispensation myself. So sure, don't speak ill of the, the, the of the dead, but don't uh, don't buy a packet of lies uh, mm. in the same in the same uh, phrase as not speaking ill of the okay. of the okay. dead. Yeah? I and think you it, and, have to be very clear. And,
1: very sh- and ship, I don't know the families, but I, I presume uh, the families of Henry Bourne and John uh, Morley have uh, during this for forty years. So. Uh, they they should be at the forefront of our of our mind today. Um, this I finally asked Tom Connolly, who was referenced there by John O'Brien. Um, I asked him the same question about Peter Pringle. As, as I said, Tom Connolly is adamant, and he's adamant. One of the the, the three members of the gang told him categorically that Peter Pringle shot one of the guards that day, uh, John Morley. Um, I asked Tom the same point: Is it? it is it? As Sonny said, can we not just? We never know the answer. She believes, and um, and can we leave? Can we leave it at that? This is Tom.
5: When I got the opportunity of saying what I have said, I'm quite happy. I feel that I can talk about what they said to me. Okay. And and you asked me the the big question: Was he was Pringle involved?
1: Definitely, yes. Okay, back after this break. Joe at rte.ie. Talk to Joe on 0818
0: 715 815. Joe Duffy. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talking
1: about the passing of Peter Pringle and the uh, contention by uh, a number of journalists and um, Gardaí that he was the third man, uh, he was originally convicted for it. Uh, Kevin Kelly. Kevin, you knew Peter in his in his last days. Kevin. Kevin there. Michael, Michal Frayn. Mihal, good afternoon.
9: Good afternoon, Joe.
1: Um, you were nine when it happened. What's your memory of the robbery?
9: Well, I, I lived up the streets just from the bank in Ballahatering, and I remember this, that day very well. It's clear I was only nine. 42 years ago now but I remember myself and a couple of friends just playing as you do down the street around the bank there and um, I remember my sister came down for me to tell me to go home for my dinner Mm -hmm. and uh, she said mother's going to kill you get up home for your dinner and I remember just going up the back way just up from the bank and I could hear shots just you know which is very unusual for a young nine year old to be here down the street and um, as it happened my two friends that I was with and my sister had this gunpoint outside the bank um, okay. very frightening experience and at that stage the, the robbers when they left the bank there was a bit of a, a bit of an incident in the in the bank of the robbery Some someone threw an axe through the window of the bank I remember at the time and uh, they were sort of laid up the town they drove up the town firing mm. up in the air and I can remember there was a house just up the road from my own house almost next door and there was builders on the roof of it and I can remember them jumping down on the scaffolding at the back like, like just jumping off to get off because the, the guys were shooting up at them went up as far as the top of the town the Garda station and fired at the Garda station, turned and came back down okay. the town, and I can remember it was, you know, you could hear the yeah, screaming. And were, the they, were they
1: wearing balaclavas, do you remember?
9: Wearing balaclavas, yeah. Wearing balaclavas, yeah. and I went down the town I, I can remember actually going back down the street again, and then afterwards, uh, and um, there was a Garda yeah. patrol car actually driving down the street, and uh, the two Garda Jeez. were taken out of the patrol car, and they were faced down when I came down the street, and all the guards said, "You
1: know, what's the story of the gun there?" You know, and I remember yeah. everyone was just okay. shocked. It was okay. still, still so vivid for and so many people, including yourself, uh, me, Hall, and uh, the the earlier uh, caller, Bridget, uh, Kevin Kelly. Kevin, you knew Peter Pringle in his in his last months.
10: I did. I did. It was an absolute honour to have known the man. Um, okay. I knew him for quite some time, really, the last ten years or more, but okay. quite closely in the last year and a half, two years.
1: And were you were you his carer, Peter? Is that, uh, Kevin, is that fair to well, say?
10: Well, one of many, I suppose. Um, yeah. There was quite a lot of people pulled in to support him at, yeah, okay. in the last couple of months. and A lot of people that were very, very dear to him over his life. Yeah. His daughter, daughter-in-law, or his yeah, daughter-in-law, Caroline, was being one of them. Yeah. Uh, she was very close to him and came down for a lot of the time that he was ill. Okay. Another old lady who had come over from the States, Dorothy, she was there for a lot of the time and a lot of the yeah. other nurses and other friends of his that kind of seen... It's, uh, I suppose seeing the update about him taking a turn and it's quite incredible really being there and just yeah. being on the,
1: the edges of it and seeing the impact that he had on people's lives and the time that he spent. Okay. Like, it was and I, d- really. I don't want to intrude on anyone's um, uh, private and intimate caring moments and I completely and totally as everyone does respect the incredible work that, ca- that carers do. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Kevin, about Peter Pringle?
10: Or just to end the, the conversation on a positive note about him, because it's, like a couple of people have mentioned already, it's very hard to prove what's right and what's wrong, and it seems like a very unfair choice of time to drag up such a massive, sto- massive story that happened in the country, mm-hmm. um, that when he's not here to defend his own honour and back mm-hmm. himself up, it's a <laughs> very inappropriate time, I suppose. Um but I know if he was here to defend himself, he would be encouraging everyone to just pick up a copy of, copy of his book and not listen mm. to people's stories and opinions.
1: And oh, that's and an indeed he was, in, he was interviewed extensively on this program when his book came out himself yeah. and Sonny. Okay, Kevin. Uh, uh, sorry, condolences on your your grief Thanks. as well, and thank you and to it, all
10: the other families involved. Yeah. Um, mm, okay, if I well. can just say that like, it's not only this side of things that have been affected by it and i'm sure it's not this side of things that are only being affected by it now either okay, okay. So for peace i know peter peter always said Thing green and so thing green to green to people and see the love that's there he's always around us and the changes that he's made in people's lives even after suffering such a massive change to his own life it's been incredible to come okay. back and have that kind of impact so
1: OK, yeah, thanks indeed, uh, Kevin, Thank you. Kevin Kelly. Mick Clifford, will you will be writing about this again? I presume the, the admission today by Tom Connolly that Pat McCann, one of the three, told him personally that Peter Pringle was involved. Is that news or is it that just, just to be forgotten at this stage?
4: Well, it's, 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 it's news all right, um, Joe, but I don't know whether it's something... I'd be exploring further because, you know, I'm quite happy. To, I mean, just one thing to say, like, I mean, Kevin Darren, obviously the same mm. thing uh, somebody's last days of their life and somebody caring for them. However, just one thing I would say is I, I wouldn't advise people to pick up Peter Pringle's book because it is not, unfortunately, a true reflection of what happened. And the other element to it is, as I say, I paused before writing this, but the public record is important, and okay. these days, in particular, particularly with digital media, we see how the, how the truth can be okay. uh, manipulated, etc. And I think it's important that the public record is out there of what the actual okay. facts were during this
1: event. Okay. Well, you can read Mick's article; it's in the uh, on the Irish Examiner website it's behind the paywall, but it's last Saturday's Irish uh, Irish Examiner full page, and Tom Connolly's book is uh, called. Uh, the detective and that's available by the way in public libraries uh, joe at rte.ie uh, Mark McGrouse and sound Stephen Higgins at the BCO Annette Egan produced and Ray
0: Darcy is next 0818 715 815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie